Monday, everybody. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you. Man, do we have a lot to get to tonight. Fitz, every time we start, I look at this uh, rundown that we get ourselves prepared for the show, and it only has two hours in it, and my head goes... Because I'm used to three. (laughs) I got used to three for a while there. And on a night like tonight when we've got... uh, NBA playoff series continuing, NBA playoff series starting. We've got, um, you know, a conversation about the NFL that's 10 days away somehow. It's impossible to imagine getting to everything, especially when you're coming off a weekend like we just had, in addition to all the conversation that we've been having for months about the coronavirus, about civil unrest, about uh, these big picture issues in our country. We add on to that these, these deaths that feel like an added wound, um, especially for the black community. Uh, Chadwick Boseman dies, and it's not just how young he was, and it's not just what he meant to that community and to the arts, but the fact that he had somehow kept a secret that he was ailing for years and performing in those ways and being an icon in those ways while very sick. Then Cliff Robinson goes to cancer, also very young, 53. And then John Thompson. And we're going to have Uh, Jesse Washington from The Undefeated on later to talk about John Thompson. He uh, was uh, writing a book about his life. Um, And so all of that happens with the return of the NBA fits. And it just adds some layers, I think, to what we saw with the walkout and the issues that are going on in our country. And then these black icons that are passing role models, people who are are known to that community. Um, And it just added a whole nother level to what those NBA players returned to the courts carrying on their backs. I, I couldn't help, Sarah, but watch and think about sort of the impact that when you mentioned the passings over the course of the weekend and you start thinking about what it means to everybody and the fact that the NBA took that moment before their games on Saturday uh, to recognize the passings, a, a couple of those passings. And I think it, it's so powerful to realize how connected everything feels like it is right now. I mean, we're not that far removed from a world where it felt like athletes and musicians and entertainers all lived in their own mini bubbles. And it feels like something has happened in 2020 that's really connected them in different ways. So even just the honoring of Bozeman before the NBA game, I thought was a strong statement to how culture right now has sort of blended everything together and people are celebrating and grieving as one. It's, it's really been powerful. Well, it brings me back to conversations we were having very early on in the quarantine. And as somebody wisely pointed out, for as separate as we all feel, because we are literally unable to be together, we've never been more together. We're all doing the same thing. Oprah is doing the same thing as we are, right? She's sitting at home, socially distancing, waiting things out. And so um, it does make you think that because of our inability to get lost in some of the activities and travels and things that we normally do, we're instead all focused on, on you know, the same seminal moments. And it's, it happens more rarely now because our attentions are being you know, twisted and taken so many different directions, unlike when the entire country was like watching Little House on the Prairie at the same time, right? It's, very, it's a different vibe, um, but it does, <laughs> it does unite us even a, a, around tragedy. And when, when we saw the NBA return to action with such an intention to continue the messages that they had already uh, focused on, um, perhaps even more so to make sure that their return didn't obscure them. And Jamal Murray, talk about a balancing act. He goes out and puts up 50 uh, for the Nuggets, establishes himself as perhaps the leader of that team um, in ways that we hadn't imagined before. He is breathing heavily, still recovering from the game, and gets emotional when asked about his shoes, collects himself, takes some long pauses, and then says this, which I thought was incredibly poetic for post-game. I just want to win. 
and in life you find things that hold value to you and things to fight for. And we found something we're fighting for as an NBA, as a collective unit. And I usually choose as a as a symbol to me to keep fighting all around the world. So like I said, they give me a lot of power to keep fighting. We want to win. I show my motion. It comes out. So you have a picture of George Floyd on your right shoe here. We got Bianca Taylor. Why? Why is this been so personal for you, Jamal? Because it's not just in America. It happens everywhere. And uh, for us coming together, the NBA. And you know, it doesn't take one meeting. It takes a couple meetings, a few meetings. It takes phone calls. It takes persistence. It's not going to take one night. And we've been doing, trying to fight for 400 years. But these shoes give me life. Even though these people are gone, they give me life. They give me. Uh, they help me find strength to keep fighting this world. That's what I'm keep doing. So wow. it feels like everybody's. <laughs> it feels like they're playing for something bigger. And I know that sounds cheesy and cliche, but you can hear it right there. You're talking about somebody that's coming off a 50-point night that had done something in the last couple of games that's only been done by, you know, a guy named Jordan. So when you start talking about the level of productivity that they've gotten out of him in the last couple of games, and frankly a series that hasn't gotten enough love for how good it's been, he takes that moment to really collect his thoughts and his emotion, but you can hear in the emotion that he's playing for something more than just 50 points and more than just staying alive in the playoffs. And it all has a different meaning to the individuals that are on the court that are fighting for so much right now, not just on the court, but off the court. And it's special. I, I don't know how we'll encapsulate this and look back on it later in life, but I keep thinking about the way players are using their voice and what me, what matters so much to them right now. And it feels like we're in this little special moment for the NBA and, and it's powerful to watch. Yeah, and what's also been powerful to watch is this series. But because there aren't really any argument talking points, it's really gotten downplayed. And maybe the talking point now is, is this Jamal Murray's team, right? Or I heard them talking on uh, Keyshawn, uh, Jay, and Zubin today uh, about, you know, was Donovan Mitchell a true star, which I had already decided he was. But if that's the argument you need to take to get you into this series, that's fine too. For me, it's just been... We're going to keep trading back basically 50 burgers every game or, or near 50 burgers every game. We're going to ha we're going to at the end of this series, in my opinion, feel like no matter which team wins, the other one absolutely could have also taken it and deserved it. It's crazy to, to watch the way this series has gone back and forth and to feel like I don't really know who's earned it. And it's. It's an exhausting series to watch. I mean, when you watch the, the pace of play, particularly the level of intensity, the funny thing. They are putting up a bunch of points, but it's not because of a lack of effort defensively. You've got two teams that are pushing for everything they've got. It's just you're watching a group of scorers here that are doing such phenomenal work. And that seems to be the one thing. The more we talk to different NBA guys, they say, hey, during the quarantine, a lot of guys were working on shooting because it's an individual thing you can work on. Well, we're seeing that in this series. I mean, it doesn't take any open space at all to suddenly create either the right drive or the right shot. And they're hitting all of them, it feels like. So you're seeing this movement towards yet another young star in the NBA that's worth watching that's under the age of 25. Right? That, that has become like the line in the sand. And there's so much talent below that line it's actually it, it's funny that you look across and you see what this league is capable of and you're right Sarah we're not spending enough time paying attention to it because there's not crotch hits and headbutts and all those other right. things that well other and they're not coastal elites of course right the uh, east coast west coast bias we've got to <laughs> kind of middle of nowhere not that uh, either place is actually middle of nowhere but because it's in the middle of the country they don't get the love and 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 because those you know those superstars like you said are young and up and coming but boy 
are they announcing their presence within this series as we're watching it? Um, and 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 you're just reminded of some of these teams that are going to be on the up for quite some time. Which brings us into tonight's games. We've got two NBA games. It's Spain and Fitz, by the way. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. Um, we've got two games tonight. We've got the beginning of a brand new series that has a whole lot of people making some pretty big statements. Heat Bucks, game one starts. Uh, did it already start? Uh, I guess yeah, it's six, game's underway. 630, 6.30 Eastern. Uh, I always get confused uh, on my timings here. So, yeah, Heat Bucks, game one is actually underway. And then Rockets Thunder, game six at 9 Eastern tonight. Which one do you want to tackle first? Well, I will say this. I mean, I'm all in on Heat uh, Heat Bucks. That game right now, 26-21 uh, with about five minutes left to go in the first. Uh, Milwaukee's up. But I'm all in on this because I think Milwaukee's going to make a statement. I think everybody has just fallen so in love with the Heat over the course of the last seven, eight, nine months, obviously, because of the shutdown. But uh, over the course of this year, people have fallen in love with the Heat. I think we've all, we're all waiting for the Bucks to hit a wall. I don't think it's going to happen. I still think Ooh. the Bucks are going to come out of the East, and I think that they're going to beat Miami, and they're going to make a statement in the process of doing it. Well, some people believe otherwise. We'll get to that a little bit later in the show. A lot of people very hot on the heat. We'll get into it. But coming up, believe it or not, we're 10 days away from the start of the 2020 NFL season. One team made a pretty interesting move today, plus something fun we want you to be a part of if you deserve it. We'll tell you what it is next. ESPN Radio. Yeah, it's not that surprising that Leonard Fournette is no longer with the Jags, but maybe a little bit surprising that he was just outright released. The whole lot that goes into the contract part of it and everything else. A lot of other teams perhaps hoping to just pick him up without having to give anything up in return and take on that contract. But still, add it to the list for the Jags. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guest join us on the Shell Penzoil Performance Line. Don't forget to listen to ESPN Audio at home via your smart speaker, ESPN Audio at home. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Vans. Drive a Mercedes-Benz van. Find out how far an extra mile really goes. From customization and service to financial assistance, Mercedes-Benz Vans are ready for anything. We'll get to the Jags in just a minute, Fitz. But first, can we address the fact that the NFL is 10 days away? Next Thursday, a week from Thursday, there will be actual NFL, not even preseason, a real game that matters. A, a real NFL game, 10 days away I, I feel like as much as the preseason gets maligned, I've always been a proponent of having two preseason games, one predominantly to get the starters ready to go and, and break off the rust, and the other one to get the coaches to be able to see who they want to make those final cuts on. Uh, but e even I, of course, have made fun of the, the quality of play in some preseason games. Now I find myself missing them and wondering if I'll be ready for the start of the season without using them to figure out who to draft in fantasy and Who's going to start? The Bears don't have a starting quarterback right now. Like, how is how are we 10 days away? I feel so lost right now. And it's funny you mentioned preseason because before we were reunited for the second chapter of the show, uh, on when I was working in a different so time slot, I asked everybody uh, what they thought about preseason football when the rumors started to f come together that there would only be a couple of games. So we put out polls and we had people call in. And overwhelmingly, Sarah, over the course of hours, people were calling in and voting on polls to support that they love preseason football. Like a lot of diehard fans like it more than the media understands. I think sometimes we all look at it and say, well, it's it's bad football. I can't really say anything much about it because there's not a lot to take away. But for fans, you fall in love with watching in a, a fourth you know, fifth wide receiver trying to figure out what they're going to do. And that's sort of become part of the passion. I feel lost as a Raiders fan as much as I read everything every writer tweets. 
I feel lost not knowing exactly how rookies are coming together, and I haven't seen any play, so I don't know whether to be excited or not excited. So I, I feel like a lot of us are going into our fantasy drafts coming up, and we have no clue what to do or how to do it because we've seen zero football. It makes a week from Thursday more exciting, I think, but it also has me <laughs> nervous as heck because I just don't know what to expect. Well, we'll put it on uh, Twitter, at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. If you're not following us, honestly, what are you doing with your lives? Uh, the question is, of course, are you ready for some football? No, like really ready, though, or does 10 days away feel super soon and you know nothing about which teams are going to be good and who's going to start and who to draft in fantasy? And holy hell, how is football here? Yes or no? Uh, so uh, let us know what you think about that. Uh, we'll see if you guys are feeling the same way we're feeling. Uh, and also, speaking of that and uh, speaking of fantasy and not knowing who to draft, we have a Spain and Fitz Fantasy League, and we want you guys to be a part. We're going to take a listener or two. We're not sure of the final number yet to compete alongside uh, us and Chanel Gumake and Courtney Cronin and some other uh, superstars, some of the guys on the board and producers here. Um, if you want to be a part of it, Fitz, first of all, listen to the after party, our digital-only mm -hmm. podcast after parties. There have been some hints in there. There will be some more hints in there of things to add to maybe get your, your, your uh, submission to the top of the list. And then tweet with hashtag Spain and Fitz Fantasy League. Name the league. That's how you win the spot. A clever, creative, fun name that's unique to Spain and Fitz or is just funny in general that is uh, not the name of your team, not the name of our teams. Name the league that we will be playing in, and we'll pick a couple winners. Remember, too, I have to give everybody the same reminder I gave people last year when I was traveling with game day. Always worried about these things. We work for Mickey Mouse, so if we can't say it on radio, <laughs> if I couldn't say it to Mickey Mouse, you can't name the league that way. So just Man, you're the keep only it in one mind. on this show who remembers that because I were more likely to encourage people to give us names we can't say. Okay, fine. If you can give us a name that we feel really uncomfortable saying, but at the same time our bosses will let go through, I think Ooh, that's probably that's the, win the winner. Like, that's the winner. <laughs> somebody we're, that's figured out that tap dance. Yeah, we want to. We want to gliggle. Gliggle. <laughs> Please, somebody cut that. For the love of God, it's rare that Sarah misspeaks. Uh, so, like, I need gliggle cut and a I drop that a we can put down. Is a half laugh, half giggle. It's a gliggle. <laughs> Uh, or my next band name, the Gliggles. Uh, so, well, my, that's the name of our league, actually. Oh, <laughs> wow, perfect. Contest over. Uh, but like Sarah said, be sure to check out the podcast, too, because we give you extra ways to get out. And, and I'm, I'm lost. I'll be honest. You know, I'm participating in multiple fantasy leagues this year, and I don't know if the right approach is just to throw spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. Like, do I just go, like, uh, do I let the computer quietly auto-draft me and just not tell everybody? <laughs> or, do, you know, do I just buy every magazine and just do what they, like, because there's no way any of us have a clue about how that particular guy on your uh, new team is going to work out. We just don't know yeah. at this point. We don't know anything about these offenses. I do I have to admit that I have occasionally used a surf service that like you sign up for and it you you log in and connect it to your draft and then throughout it's keeping tabs on everybody who's been selected and it tells you what the best one is next and if you really hate them or you disagree you can select someone else but for the most part I'm like this is an amalgamation of the best fantasy experts weighing in they probably know more than I do because I haven't had time so I'm gonna stick with that this year and by the way Worth noting that, you know, we talked about the preseason being gone. Matt Nagy decided last year, the coach, the, the Bears, to sit in his <laughs> starters for almost the whole preseason. Failed miserably. They started off rusty. And so then after that, he admitted he was wrong and said, I will be using them in the preseason. We need those reps. And now there isn't one. And now he says nobody's going to know who the starting quarterback for the Bears is until the season opener. 
So if you were planning on uh, drafting one of the Bears quarterbacks as your starter, first of all, uh, would you like to be a part of our league? I would like to beat the brakes off you. Uh, but secondly, you're not going to know who that is until day one. Sarah, I am going to beg you to Instagram live, like, or Twitter, whatever, social media, the first game of the season, just when you discover when who the starting yeah. quarterback is. <laughs> like, I just want to see that real reaction from a bunch of Bears fans. Either way, whether it's yeah. no, no matter which side. Like, I've decided this year that uh, after my beloved Raiders play every Sunday, I'm going to get out there and, and, you know, give you live, fresh reaction before I have oh, the nice. opportunity to, to filter it. And depending on how many drinks I've had, that could be a terrible idea. Bitses, bitses, bitses. Bitses. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's gonna be it, it's gonna be painful, but I'm just imploring you to do that. By the way, nobody's gonna have a more painful season at this point. It looks like than the Jags. They did yeah. cut Leonard Fournette today, which I don't think is a big surprise to either of us, right? But it's a reminder that this franchise has just managed to run themselves into the dirt, and now they are strictly in, Trent, in tank for Trevor Spot. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they didn't have a trade partner doesn't mean that there won't be a market for him. It merely was that they didn't want to take on. The $4.16 million guaranteed because of injury, because of where his talent level may or may not be, because of cap hits, uh, no offset language if he's ultimately released. There's there's a lot going on here, and he will find a home with 10 days to go. It will be a little trickier. But where this leaves a team that had a double-digit fourth-quarter league lead with a Super Bowl on the line and just tightened their sphincters and blew it, uh, just three years later, we're looking at having blown up a whole squad. Uh, and we're going to get into some of the details with that with our next guest because it is a kind of fantastical decline from a team that was on the verge. And most people will talk about them drafting Fournette instead of maybe Mahomes or someone else. But there's a whole lot more to it than just that draft. We'll talk to a former Jags player about what's going on in Jacksonville and what's next for the franchise. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN <laughs> app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, we're going to get straight into some straight talk on the Jaguars and Leonard Fournette. By the way, uh, Sarah, that was spectacular as the guys behind the scenes and the, the show have done a great job of trying to bring some of our finest moments. That says something about the show so far today, <laughs> that those are our finest moments. But that that's about to... Gliggle's coming back. <laughs> oh, Gliggle is going to be part of, like, if we ever get shirts made, Gliggle is on it. That's all I'm saying. All right, let's get to some Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And in order to do that, we'll head over to the Shell Penzo Performance Line, where we're joined by Leon Searcy from 1010XL in Jacksonville, former NFL offensive lineman. Leon, really appreciate your time and insight on the Jags here. We were just talking about the fact that Leonard Fournette's no longer with the team, and it seems like they're in full tank mode. So why now for this move to not have Fournette with the team? Listen, I'm as puzzled as you as you are. I have no idea why they made the move. They could have made this move three months ago, gave them the opportunity to get on another team. And, you know, they cut him two weeks before the season started. And what's crazy about it is the fact that Leonard during the during practices and scrimmages I mean, he's getting all the reps with the ones. So, I mean, those reps are invaluable, especially with the season rolling around. If you wanted to develop the young running back talent, you know, you could have got rid of Leonard three to four months ago and gave those guys an opportunity to actually practice. But Leonard's been taking the reps, the ones. So, this to me, this seems something that's a little bit more internal. I think that, you know, now that Leonard's gone, they might come out, it might seek out, seep out what's going on. But uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, this is a head-scratcher. Yeah, so you think there might be something that that you know sort of made this happen overnight or or in the recent uh, days, or do you think perhaps they had him out there with the ones to try to convince other teams he was worth 
taking in a trade instead of the outright release. It's been rumored that they were going to part ways, but it was the outright release that really stood out. Maybe they were trying to sell others on his ability. Well, you know, it was what was what was um, troubling to me is that you know Doug Marone and I've had the opportunity to sit down with Doug, you know, because I was doing a commentary with the Jaguars last year. He doesn't seem to be the type of person that takes parting shots at, at players, but. Uh, the, his his presser when they would let go of Leonard Fournette today was like, look, we couldn't get a fifth for him. We couldn't get a sixth for him. We couldn't get anything for him. In my opinion, that's devaluing Leonard in some capacity, in some right. way, because, you know, they, they throw seventh-round picks around like candy in the NFL. Are you trying to tell me that you couldn't get a guy who last year had 1,700 all-purpose yards, a seventh-round pick, some, some kind of draft commodity for him? I just don't believe that. I think that there has to be something – that might leak out later on. There's some kind of grievance that, uh, I mean, he's already filed a grievance against the Jaguars because of the money that was taken away from him last year. So there had to be something said for them to just have a guy on the team running the ones, uh, getting all the reps, and then all of a sudden you just cut him two weeks before the season starts. We're talking to Leon Searcy from 1010XL in Jacksonville, former NFL offensive lineman, played eight years in the league for the Steelers and Jaguars on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Jason Fitz, Sarah Spain. So, Leon, I, I guess one of the things that I'm really having a hard time wrapping my mind around with this is Fournette makes the offense better, and in theory they're at least banking on trying to see what they have with Gardner Minshew as a quarterback. So given the fact that they've just taken away one of their offensive weapons to evaluate their young quarterback with, what does that tell you about how they feel about the quarterback position moving forward? Well, it tells me that they feel comfortable. I don't know how when he hasn't had an offseason. I mean, listen, Gardner Minshew's maturity and his growth as a quarterback last year had a lot to do with the fact that he had a running game. And Leonard Fournette, you had a guy who could catch the ball out the backfield. You had a guy who could hit the hole. You know, gave Gardner Minshew opportunity to, to see single coverage or, or on, on uh, you know, see, single, see, see the coverage a lot differently when you've got a running game than when you don't have a running game. Now, I know Jay Gruden is supposed to be this offensive guru with his offensive philosophy, but that's a lot of – that's a lot to put on the shoulders of a second-year quarterback, six-round pick from last year, who didn't even have an offseason to go into the season, virtually having to take this offense upon his shoulders without a established run game. So, uh, you know, initially Marone was indi- indicating that uh, Leonard was in a good fit, and I- I'm just trying to figure out how does a 1,700 all-purpose back not be a good fit for any offense. It's Spain and Fitz talking to Leon Cersei, former Jag, about – uh, the, the latest part of this purge. Uh, Fournette, of course, cut today, but they already parted ways with Yannick Ngakwe and Calais Campbell, Jalen Ramsey last year. This is a team that was on the verge of a Super Bowl, less than a quarter away from clinching a Super Bowl berth, and now they're just sort of out. Uh, do you think that uh, with a couple pieces that they that they had to get rid of, maybe the Jalen Ramsey thing going wrong, uh, that this is a smart move to just say, okay, wipe the slate clean and start over? Or is there any way to sort of explain the moves they've been making lately? I really can't explain them. And I thought I'd never say this, but I'm going to come to Jalen Ramsey's defense last year when he said that the, there was no culture of winning within the organization. And, and it's starting to look like that because when you let amazing talent, good young talent go at virtually you know no cost at all, you know, we're talking about Jalen Ramsey. You're talking about Unique Ngakwe. You're talking about Marcel Darius. You're talking about Calais Campbell, A.J. Boye, Leonard Follett, Allen Rob. I mean, this organization over the last decade or so has just let Dante Flowers, Fowler. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me if you have a commitment to winning football games when you let all, 
letting all this amazing talent go and not signing them into second contracts. I mean, Unique and Gakwe had a right to stand out. I mean, to sit out because, you know, this team is, is virtually doesn't give you second contracts to their young talent. What they do is they spend a bunch of money on outside guys and bring them in, and that could cause any kind of decision in the locker room when you've got the likes of Ramsey and Unique and Leonard and you're paying Foles this money. You're paying Andre, Andre Norwell big money. I mean, so, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I know that there, there's the, the, the sentiment of tanking for Trevor. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know players in a performance-based league like the NFL that's impossible to tank because it's always on film and you're costing yourself money if you don't play to a certain level. But organizationally, I don't know. They haven't shown any – any any signs of, of putting a team together that can go out there and ultimately win football games. So, Leon, who's that on? Because you could take a look at the draft and say the draft has been really awful for the Jacks for years, or you can take a look at the talent development and say the coaching hasn't developed the the players that have been drafted. So where does the blame lie in your mind? Well, um, Dave Caldwell and ownership for allowing it to keep happening year in and year out. I mean, Dave Caldwell has been with the Jaguars and – he, um, his record as as a general manager is is atrocity. I mean, it's an atrocity. I mean, he's like forty and ninety one, something crazy like that. I mean, I know it's under five hundred, and just the bust after bust after bust. Now he did a good job last year. I give him credit for you know Josh Allen and Jawan Taylor, but that's shoot, that's one out of ten years or one out of eight years. I mean, all the other stuff that he's brought in. Now he brought in Ramsey. He did have Miles Jack. And he had unique in one draft, but don't shoot two of the three of those guys are gone. I mean, so I will put it on the, uh, the general manager and the ownership for allowing it to happen. Liam, we curious, appreciate you. Oh, just ahead, really Sarah. quickly, Sorry. is Doug Marone still the guy for the job? If this is on the GM, it, do you believe in Doug Marone or I, he just was given the right role? No, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't think he's the guy for the job. Uh, I think the last year he probably should have gotten fired. But he's given another opportunity. The scapegoat last year was Tom Coughlin. I guess the scapegoat this year would be the coronavirus and give him another year. Um, so I, you know, I, you know, I, if I sat down with the guy breaking a broken bread with him, uh, I just don't think that he has the heartbeat of this of, of this team and his and his best interests. And I don't think that this organization is going to move forward until they move forward with another with another head coach and a new and another general manager. That's some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contracts, no compromise. You can listen to them on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Leon, seriously, Leon, we really appreciate your time and your insight on the team. Thanks so much for joining us, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. And, Sarah, you know, I think one of the interesting things, and we just asked Leon about it, but to me, if you're getting rid of Leonard Fournette right before the season, you're making life more difficult for Gardner Minshew. It, it just – I look at the pieces and I keep thinking, man, are they just setting up Minshew yeah. to fail? And then essentially you just blow up everything that you – I'm never rooting for a coach and GM to get fired, Sarah, but that's what it feels like the inevitability is here, that they're going to hit a wall and have to start all the way over starting at the next draft. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, we'll see what all that means moving forward. One thing we know is as they try and get ready for the draft, they're not going to be able to have much tape on anything from the Big Ten, or will they? We finally got some concrete answers on how the decision was made for the Big Ten not to play, and it raises some interesting questions. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and Sirius XM Channel 80. We've got more information. We are getting more details, but it doesn't change anything that you just heard. It still looks like for all the Big Ten and for the families and the players and the fans that have stood up and screamed, we want details and we want to play, well, 
you're going to get details, but that doesn't mean anything towards actually getting to play. It's Bain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com. She's Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. And Sarah, The Athletic has a great article out there that really breaks down some of what we're now learning. And this is what we anticipated when uh, when families started a lawsuit against the Big Ten asking for transparency. We now get a little of that transparency. We know through two sworn, uh, sworn affidavits that there was an 11-3 to 3 vote. So that is true to overwhelming. The concept was that there was an overwhelming vote not to play. We know 11-3 to 3 was that vote. That is overwhelming. We also, though, got some important medical information, including a three-month study conducted by Ohio State Director of Sports Cardiology, Dr. Kurt Daniels, that found that approximately 15% of college athletes who had tested positive for COVID-19, almost all who had no symptoms, were also found to have contracted myocarditis, the heart, uh, the heart condition we've been talking about so much. So, Sarah, we get some medical information on why they made the decision. We get that it was an overwhelming decision. And now I guess I'm left looking at Big Ten families and saying, you got the info. What are you going to do with it now? Because the answer is there's not much you can do. Right. And, and it feels like also so much of this is happening because of a distrust in other people, distrust in other people's opinions about this disease and the fact that there wasn't enough transparency from the get. You know, the Pac-12 came out and said, here's the vote we took. It was unanimous. Here's a 12 page document with health and safety concerns from the conference's medical group that influenced our decision. And everyone seemed to accept that that's why they did it and that they did it for good reason. Now, the Pac-12, you know, you can try to argue whether or not the, the fans of those teams or those schools are more invested or it could be because, you know, Justin Fields of Ohio State was, you know, circulating a petition or specifically because of Nebraska fighting back. Like, there are a number of little things here that could have led to the distrust and the general ennui from Big Ten supporters versus the, the Pac-12 sort of accepting it. But I think it's about the transparency. Big Ten uh, presidents kind of came out, didn't sound like there was a formal vote. It wasn't clear that there was a vote at all, not to mention a vote that showed an overwhelming majority. Now that we know there has been, it's information that should have been released before. And same goes for any of the medical information that is influencing decision making. And I've said this across the board, regardless of conference, regardless of league, we need to know what you're using to make your decisions. And if then you make that decision, the trust needs to be there that the presidents and chancellors, specifically ones who they themselves are physicians, are making this for good reason. Like you mentioned, that myocarditis, not just that 15% of college athletes who had tested positive had it, but also, as the New York Times described it, a, quote, alarmingly high rate for an otherwise rare heart condition. If it's more prevalent in coronavirus than in other viruses, if myocarditis is much more common and the only people discovering it are these athletes because of the necessity to test for it, we need to know that, not just for these athletes, but for the regular population, right? And so I think transparency would have solved a lot of these problems in advance and probably might even have prevented the coaches from that phone call the other night and their push to publicly try to prove that they're going to fight for a season because they would probably have a lot more information to go off of and understand that they're not going to sway the presidents and chancellors who came to this decision based on uh, on good reason and 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 good uh, advice. Well, and, and to that end, Sarah, you, you know, you mentioned the way presidents and chancellors or chancellors are handling it. To me, they're hiding. I mean, they were relying on Kevin Warren to be able to come out and say, hey, a vote happened. It was overwhelming. We're not going to get into how it went down. 
I don't think that you can do that in today's world. And as fans are yelling at Kevin Warren for making the decision not to play basketball, or basketball, I've got basketball in front of me, not to play football, as they're yelling about that decision, I still believe they should be yelling specifically to the schools that they root for because those presidents haven't come out and spoken. I mean, I think it is alarming. We presume Ohio State, although we don't know, we presume because Ohio State has been so vocal that they're one of the schools that voted against postponement. Yet when they quote the doctors that were part of the study, it is an Ohio State doctor that's coming out and really leading the charge for the medical information. I think it's fair now for Ohio State fans and for alumni and people that back the football program to now look at Ohio State specifically and say, okay, I want to know how the president voted on this and why. I mean, those are the fair, transparent questions that could end some of this conversation and at least give people peace towards the process that got us to where we are. Yeah, absolutely. And it might not, right? I mean, there's plenty of people that can be given a whole lot of information about this and decide that, you know, what they value is the football that they want to watch or play. Um, And they're willing to take the risk. The question is, would they be willing to put everybody else's kids and families at risk if they were the ones in charge? And there's there's no way to prove that, but it certainly feels like um, at least being as transparent as possible would help people understand. Especially given the fact that, let's be real, Ohio State has a very legitimate chance if they played this year at winning a national championship. And, you know, we've we've both got friends that are Ohio State fans, right? Like, there are people in my life that I know that love Ohio State. And the hardest part is even when I try to have a fair, just reasonable, down-the-middle conversation about these decisions, it's just human nature. It's all Mm -hmm. swayed by the fact that fans are looking at it and saying, but we have a shot at a national championship. And that's not more important than COVID. We all know that. But it sways the way that this information is received because you know what's on the line when you're in that that crazy window where you're looking at it and saying, this team has a chance to have a Heisman Trophy winner, the top pick in the draft possibly, and a national championship. And we're not going to get them get to see him play. And nobody's telling us exactly why. I feel like that's changing the way the information is being received. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. There is, of course, uh, the, the, the also the distrust in the NCAA. And even though these aren't specifically NCAA decisions, they are people who are related to that, right? So this decision that the people on high who make uh, the rules in college football and college sports in general can't be trusted. There's questions about the politicization of this virus. You know, all of that contributes, I think, to not being willing to listen to the people whose decision it is to make and to instead fight it. Um, And unfortunately, unlike a lot of things in our country right now, this isn't something you can just argue with someone about and it will make it go away. Um, And I think for a lot of people, um, they're just so used to, if they don't get what they want, uh, threatening legal action or boycotting or protesting or being mad about it instead of saying nobody wants this. This is just the decision that somebody thought was best and we're all learning and adjusting as we go. Uh, I don't think that's going to sit well with certain people, even if there is some transparency, but I think it will help. Yeah, and you, what you said there is so smart because the reality of all of this in my eyes is you can sue all day long, but the Big Ten has the right as a conference to step up and decide that they don't want to play football. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's fair to everybody. That doesn't mean everybody gets the decision or likes the decision. The NCAA can look across the the, the bow at all of this, and you know, they can have their stake in it and their, their say in it. But it doesn't change the fact that even when you get all the information, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, great, you got the info, but now what? And to that end, that's part of why we are also looking at uh, college basketball. Because now that we've seen this hit college football, 
again, there's this mindset of what's going to happen next for the NCAA. It's curious, Sarah, that they have gone out and trademarked Battle in the Bubble. And as a result of the trademark of Battle in the Bubble, people are looking at it and saying, what the heck are they planning on doing for college basketball? And it's hard to say, trust me, because there's not enough transparency for anybody in college sports to trust anybody else. Yeah, the NCAA and their uh, filing with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, in addition to clothing items and footwear, the trademark phrase could apply to, quote, live athletic contests, games, tournaments, and exhibitions, and the NCAA's television, radio, and multimedia programs around those events, including potentially athletic uniforms listed on there. So they're going to make a bunch of money off the concept of a battle in the bubble, uh, which is going to tell us that there might be a bubble, which is going to remind us yet again that they are willing to place athletes in a completely different scenario than regular students, yet again revealing the fraudulence of their quote-unquote amateurism claims and the idea that these athletes are just like every other student. It is a very risky move. It might be the only way to get the basketball that they want, but it could come at a price in the future. And many people say that the reason they've made the decision so far not to play have everything to do with trying to protect some concept of amateurism mm-hmm. legally. And uh, that while that's a cynical take to take, Sarah, I, I, it's hard not to look at it and see it and then ask that moving question to college basketball of what it would mean if they actually do do battle in the bubble. Uh, we're just getting started. Spain and Fitz going to get you updated on everything going on in the NBA next on ESPN Radio. The Major League Baseball trade deadline came and went. So the question is... Who's the new favorite? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. She's Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. And we're going to head straight over to the Shell Penzo Performance Line, where we are joined by ESPN Major League Baseball insider Jeff Passan. Jeff, we've got so much baseball to get into with you, so many things to break down, but we're going to start with fantasy football. That seems like the appropriate (laughs) thing to do on this show, as I hear that last year you participated in the Spain and company fantasy football league now we've got the spain and fitz fantasy football league to which you and your son have been uh you've been invited and we have not yet heard a reply so what say you mr passon yeah is your son scared of me want to lose again fitz yeah uh, it's great to talk with you Thank um you. <laughs> unlike uh unlike the 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 person on this uh radio program i've been working this week um wow. so i i wow. apologize for not Replying to your uh, fantasy football uh, invitation. It's good to know, however, that uh, you think so much of me that you invite me, whereas uh, my fantasy leagues, I haven't invited you to any of them. So uh, I I will be accepting at some point that wow. invitation. Okay. Good to know. Uh, I will be I will be running up a better record uh, than you because that's what happened last year as well. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, life will be good Again, and back to normal. Yeah. Uh, I'm me, glad you're in. Just, good to know. Let me clearly say, Jeff, while I appreciate all of the hard work that you put into being a great Major League Baseball insider, texting your contacts you up in the middle of the night to get info does not count as work that can't let you respond to our fantasy <laughs> football league. This is the kind of trash talking you can expect every single weekend. <laughs> I Like, if that's the best that you guys have to offer, you haven't responded responded to my e-invite then i i'm not scared at all i am not i'm already i'm already feeling sad for fitz because fitz is such a nice guy and he's inadvertently involved himself in the pass in spain war of words which is long-standing and ongoing see no see sarah the thing is a war tends to be a two-sided thing i'd like to i'd like to believe that this is uh a wood shedding i'd like to believe this is a boat race 
I'd like wow. to believe that if if the only things that you have are passive aggressive tweets and two fantasy football victories, then it's it's been won. Like it's Passing, just you have over. nothing. Passon, I don't look like I could play both parts of the movie big, both the young Josh Baskin and the old Josh Baskin, as you do. I once read a whole email about your son uh, writing a story about liquor on the air, and and see where that got us here. No respect. It was uh, uh, no, but it, it, hold on a second. It was really good, though, wasn't it? It was good. It was good. <laughs> uh, not was as good, good as when I beat him in fantasy football. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Jeff Pass, and I suppose yeah. we should talk about baseball. So I just, I just, I just want to, I just want to make, I just want to make like sure and point this out. You just admitted that my dominance of this uh, one-sided relationship is so thorough that you admit that my progeny is smart enough at 12 years old to write a very clever story about alcohol. You are, you are saying essentially that at least half of the chromosomes that are in that child's body are, are good enough. And, and listen, we don't have time to go back into your son needing to ask me about whether he should bring a basketball to practice, even if it's flat, because apparently his dad is prepared enough to know how to blow up a basketball and inflate it enough so that he can go play with his team members. And then you had me parent your child for you. But again, this is, this is not what we're here I, for. This, this really escalated quickly. I mean, I'm here for all yeah, of it. Fitz, but take control. Take control. You know Get all us right. into some baseball, Fitz. Will you, will you tell us who, what stood out to you, by the way, now that we've gotten through the, the trade deadline that none of us were sure there were going to be any action from? So now that we're through it, you know, you're sitting back eating, drinking a cup of coffee. What stood out? I think what stood out is that uh, Sarah's so insecure about her <laughs> fantasy football. <laughs> that, that I no, beat you I, I mean, it's, 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 clear, it's clearly the San Diego Padres, right? Like, this wasn't the, the Major League Baseball tra- trade deadline. This was the San Diego Padres trade deadline. This is a team that's arguably coming into the weekend the second best in the National League. And they go out and get the best player at the deadline in Mike Clevenger. They get a closer in Trevor Rosenthal. They get two catchers. They get a a first baseman, uh, DH, in Mitch Moreland. Uh, They get three relief pitchers uh, in addition to Trevor Rosenthal from the Seattle Met. Like, they got a lot. And and it says two things. Number one, uh, they want to win this year. Like, they, they really believe that they have a shot. When you have a rotation now that has Clevenger, Denelson Lamette, uh, Zach Davies, Chris Paddock, Joey Lucchese, and Garrett Richards all to choose from, uh, and you have a lineup that's got, you know, arguably the, the two best players so far in the National League this year, Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado, uh, Trent Grisham, Jake Cronenworth, Will Myers, Eric Hosmer. I mean, uh, it's a deep and dangerous lineup, and that doesn't even include Austin Nola, who they got, and who's been absolutely fantastic for the year or so that he's been up. Uh, they're not as good as the Dodgers. I, I don't think they ever could have been, no matter what they did, is be as good as the Dodgers. But they are legitimate World Series contenders. The second thing this says is that when you go and assemble a farm system with as much depth as the Padres have, you put yourself in a position to make trades like this. They did not get rid of Mackenzie Gore, C.J. Abrams, uh, Abrams rather, Luis Patino, Luis Camposano. I, I mean, they held on to all of their best prospects. These were depth trades. And if you can build a farm system like this, spend money intelligently uh, like they have with Machado and like uh, Hosmer is, is finally living up to his contract this year and go and make you know one of the 
potentially all-time trades. Uh, and, and listen, I don't think the Padres knew they were getting this Fernando Tatis Jr. when they traded for him, but they, they thought he was going to be a dude. Uh, if you can do all those things, then you have a core that's going to be in place for years to come, and uh, I, I think that the, as good as the Dodgers are and as much as they might be favorites every year going forward, Padres are going to be there step-by-step uh, step step with them. Yeah, what's remarkable is that they didn't give out any top 100 prospects in all of what they managed well, to pull they, off. You know, they, they, tra- they did trade Taylor Trammell, and, but, but he's a guy who's – uh, the opinion in the industry has gone down on him. He he was a guy who at one point was seen as like a top 20 prospect. And listen, these these rankings are extremely subjective. And uh, in a lot of cases, uh, they miss guys. You know, Pete Alonzo, for example, was, was never a top 100 prospect. And it was because of his position. And Taylor Trammell is a guy who was young, who was athletic, who walked a lot. And those are things you look for. But uh, the development stalled, and he just didn't fit in the Padres' future, and so he went off to Seattle as the centerpiece in that deal. But all those all those names I mentioned before, and the fact that it was only one really highly rated, you know, good chance to be a star guy by the industry. Uh, it's a great job by AJ Preller for taking this team that was good and making it really good. Well, let me ask you then: Is that a team that you have? In your top contenders now, we're we're you know at the point where you can look at the teams and what they've shown and their ability to even just stay on the field. Uh, do you have a favorite or two? Uh, I listen. I I hate Sarah. I hate not you, but you. Um, <laughs> I hate preseason predictions. Um, I hate preseason predictions because I, I they're receipts, right? Like I I love talking with somebody about oh I like this team because. There's never any evidence that preseason predictions, they are on paper. They are there for the world to see. And before the playoffs expanded this year to 16 teams, when they were only 10 teams, I did have the Padres going into the playoffs. So Hmm. I have been on board with them uh, even before the field was as large as it was. But they, you know, they're really good. They also could easily get knocked out in the first round. And, and guys, I'm saying that not just about the Padres. I'm saying that about the Dodgers. I'm saying that about the Rays. I'm saying that about the A's. I'm saying that about the Yankees, the Cubs. I'm saying about that about all 16 teams that are in the postseason this year because the wild card round this year is three games. And let's let's look at Cincinnati. You know, Cincinnati goes today and uh, gets Archie Bradley from the Diamondbacks. They get Brian Goodwin from the Angels. They're, they're trying to make a little bit of a run here, even though they're only 15 and 19, because the National League this year has been one huge pile of mediocrity, aside from, really, the Dodgers, Padres, and Cubs. Let's say the Reds sneak into the eight seed. Do you think the Los Angeles Dodgers feel good about going into a three-game series against Trevor Bauer, Sonny Gray, and Luis Castillo? Those are three of the toughest pitchers to face with the nastiest stuff in the National League. And and the idea that not just this year, but going forward, uh, any team as dominant as the one seed has to be in order to capture that one seed. And we've seen a particular brand of dominance this year from the Dodgers can be summarily swept like that. To me, it takes away a lot of the the urgency uh, that should be there 
from the 162-game season. It's like, why are we playing 162 if we can just get knocked out in three? If we're playing 16, can get knocked out in three? Okay, like kind of get that. But, uh, man, it's, it's a really, really tough thing to the point where I think right now the greatest threat to the Dodgers is not who they face in the division series, the NLCS, or even the World Series, even though those are going to be increasingly better teams. I think it's the wild card round just because it's so volatile and because all it takes, even a really, really good baseball team like the Dodgers can lose two out of three games to an inferior team. And that is distinctly the possibility this year. Jeff Passan, ESPN Major League Baseball Insider. As always, my friend, we appreciate your expertise. Go respond to the email. Good Lord, get in on this league while you still can. Thanks for hanging out with us, Jeff. Have a good one, guys. Pennzoil Synthetic Motor Oils made from natural gas gives you unbeatable engine protection. The proof is in the Pennzoil based on sequence 4A wear test using SAE 5W30. Next time we have him on, I want to ask him if he's ever looked at Justin Warner, the food TV judge, because they look like brothers. I'm just saying. <laughs> Coming up, a massive loss in the in the NBA community over the weekend. We'll tell you a little bit, a bit about it. Plus, we are into the second half on the East Series. Everybody was anticipating. We'll get you updated next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Look at you forgetting how to read again. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. A little bit of breaking news. Want to get you caught up on Adam Schefter tweeting out, Derwin James needs knee surgery and will be out six to eight months per a source. So months? That's, yeah. That is a Oof. For something that was originally presumed to be a meniscus issue and thought it would be weeks, we now find out six to eight months, and that's obviously a devastating blow for a young player that is absolutely a star, but he's got to be able to stay healthy to be able to uh, rise to that level of stardom. So obviously uh, a damaging blow uh, for the Chargers is Derwin James is out six to eight months at this point, according to Adam Schefter. Also want to get you updated on the NBA action going on right now. The Heat and the Bucks are taking each other on. And Sarah, all eyes were on this is, would this be the great series of the East? Is this the one that will break Milwaukee? It's now 73 to 70 with about seven and a half minutes left in the third, uh, Milwaukee up by three in a game that has just been absolutely back and forth. Giannis not exactly uh, lighting it up early on, but doesn't matter. The Bucks and Heat both shooting well, shooting efficiently. It's been a back and forth game, and if the whole series looks like this, I'm all for it. I was going to say, I'm tempered a bit by the fact that we just saw what was supposed to be the most anticipated early series in the bubble the Blazers taking it to the Lakers, upsetting the team that came in hot but couldn't get it done in the bubble. Oh, just kidding. That didn't happen. It ended up being pretty one-sided <laughs> for the team that was top-seeded. So I'm I, I'm going to hesitate. I will say, we've said all season long, this is not a prisoner of the moment thing. This Heat team was built to be the team to give the Bucks the biggest fits, and their regular season mit, uh, meetings proved that. They've got the depth. They've got the versatility. They've got big playmakers. They've got you know, excellent in terms of the, the, the person that you want to slow down uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo and Bam Adebayo. Now, foul trouble gets Bam out of there, and that makes things really difficult. So if I'm the Bucks, I'm working really hard to try to make it challenging for Bam to play him tough in the paint without fouling, uh, because if you can't contain Giannis inside uh, with Bam, you don't really have the pieces to do it effectively otherwise. Now, the best obvious game plan for any team that's taking on the Bucks is to get hot from the outside, and uh, and then force them to try to shoot from the outside. They obviously want to do work inside with Giannis and get those high percentage points inside. We're seeing a different style from them than pretty much any other team. They're going old school with it, uh, trying to get those high percentage points. Um, I think the Heat are the team best suited to put those two things 
play on both sides of the court. But as we both know, you got to shoot then from outside uh, better than anybody else, and you got to defend the freak, literally the Greek freak. And uh, this first game's good so far. We'll see if they can keep it up throughout an entire series. Yeah, and to that end, you know, again, I think it is interesting because so much of this lies squarely at the feet of Giannis, and he has 14 points early on, but he hasn't been particularly the aggressor. It's been Middleton that's been the aggressor so far. He's mm-hmm. a 10 of 15 with 23 points, and man, if you're the Bucks as an organization, you are doing naked cartwheels through the streets in celebration if it's Chris <laughs> Middleton that wills you to a game, uh, a win in this series. I mean, that's that's playing with house money all day, every day. Yeah, that's what you want, of course, if you're the Bucks. The biggest criticism for this team, and I think the reason that despite them having on pace to be a record-setting season before coronavirus and all these things kind of got involved, uh, is that we haven't seen them win at all. They're a small market team who are, are centered around one superstar. Middleton is great. Lopez can get his, right? There's there's other guys that can get theirs, but it's not the same as looking at, a say, LeBron plus Paul George or a, 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 sorry, a, a LeBron plus Anthony Davis, a Kawhi plus Paul George. In recent years, it's been a two- or three-headed monster of superstars that need to lead the way. That's how the Bucks operate. It worked during the regular season. Can it work in postseason series all the way to a title? And I think that's why there's still some question marks and why people are so ready to uh, anoint the Heat as a team that could take it away from them because they're built uh, similarly, where, of course, Butler's a star, but they don't have those other guys that are the huge names. And they, they do the, the things that the Bucks are most uh, uh, prone to lose because of, like that hot perimeter shooting and, and the versatility. No sooner did you say that than a big three-pointer go in that ties the game. So it's just a, a case of point, and it was bad defense by the Bucks. So it, exactly what Sarah's breaking down. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Not only is that a big story coming out of the NBA, but obviously today there's been a lot of time spent remembering John Thompson, the legendary coach of Georgetown, uh, who passed away. And, and it's important to get some of these stories in about who he was as a person. And I, I don't know that there are many people in the world that can speak more fluently on the impact of John Thompson than Allen Iverson, an incredible player that uh, really changed his life under John Thompson. This is what the, the superstar had to say about his former coach. Coach Thompson was saving my life. Um. For giving me uh, the opportunity, an incident happened in high school. No other teams, no other schools were recruiting me anymore. My mom went to Georgetown and begged him to give me a chance, and he did. That was at his Hall of Fame speech. It's really powerful, and if you know anything about Iverson's story, uh, someone taking a chance on him after he'd been the best football and basketball player in the country, but because of the issues, he he was uh, sort of dropped, and, and John Thompson became such a leader for him. And that was the through line fits for a lot of the people who spoke about John Thompson was, of course, a great coach, somebody who uh, you know filled a Georgetown team and made them a basketball school when you didn't necessarily imagine them as one, but more so as a person, as a father figure, as a role model, as someone who is ahead of the game when it comes to social issues and issues uh, for people of color in this country. That really was predominant today uh, in all the stories about him was what a leader he was. Yeah, ahead of his time is the best way I've heard it described by so many experts today. And we're going to speak to one of them next, by the way. But I think it's important to note that John Thompson's legacy is only partially about the games that he coached. It really, and this has been the overwhelming uh, conversation today, it really, first and foremost, is about the people that he impacted 
as a coach. It's really incredible. Coming up next, we'll talk to Jesse Washington of The Undefeated, who's been working on the book on John Thompson. We'll get some more insight on the great coach next, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. A legendary coach, a legendary leader, and somebody who wanted to be known for much more than just basketball. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Joining us now on the Shell Penzoil Performance Line, somebody who knows John Thompson perhaps better than almost anyone. Spent the last two years working with him on writing his autobiography from the undefeated. It's Jesse Washington. Jesse, thanks for the time. Appreciate you guys. You've got a story up on the undefeated right now talking about how John Thompson Jr. didn't want to be boxed in and the man that you met and spent time with over the last couple years in writing that autobiography. Was he sick? Was he writing the autobiography because he was worried about the time he had left and the stories he wanted to tell, or did this come as a surprise to you? He was he was writing this autobiography because he wanted to say his piece, finally, after all these years. So he started it when he was in good health. Um, it was not a last-minute type of thing. And the final product is something that he read and approved every word of and felt that it expressed his true feelings on the world. Jesse, you just said he wanted to say his piece. What did he feel he was most misunderstood about? Right. Well, you know, he put up a brave front over all the years of basically being racially profiled every time he took the court. And I think it's, it's important to put him in the proper historical perspective. We remember him in the modern era, but this was a man who graduated from high school in 1960 as a very highly recruited basketball player with scholarships to a lot of big time schools. However, Georgetown University did not recruit him because in 1960, Georgetown University did not allow black players. Twelve years later, he became the head coach. So in the span of being a segregated basketball team to having a black coach, he bridged that gap. So the amount of resistance, of racism that he encountered, of just disbelief that a black man should be a coach at Georgetown was enormous. So he really took all that on the chin all these years, and he did not want to give any credence to false allegations and things like that. But he also was a human being. And really, these things sat with him for a long time. And he felt compelled, as he neared the end of his life, to really give his views on all the things that were really inflicted on him. And that's what he did. You tell a story about a teacher that helped move him uh, through schooling in a way that acknowledged some of the ways he was falling behind and helped him catch back up, gave him credit for who he could become instead of uh, assigning him, uh, you know, the, the, the title of stupid or believing that he couldn't amount to much. And you talk about how he worked his way into becoming the man that he was. How much did you learn from doing the autobiography about those individuals in his life that helped make him into someone who could take on the incredibly heavy role that he took on as both a coach and a groundbreaker? Oh, man. I learned so much. You know, I came up in the at the pinnacle of Georgetown basketball and was a Georgetown fan. And I read more than your average librarian. So I thought <laughs> I knew all there was to know about Coach Thompson. But one of the most surprising of many things was the number of mentors and influences he had that you would never expect. His sixth grade teacher had one of the most profound influences on his coaching and his coaching strategies and styles and how he treated young men. Uh, a woman named Dr. Anita Hughes, who supervised his master's degree program at the University of the Di of District of Columbia. Uh, he was mentored by Red Auerbach, who drove him hours and hours on road trips when he was a teenager in high school. 
Dean Smith was the only person who Coach Thompson said he would ever be an assistant coach for. He was an assistant for Dean Smith on the 1976 Olympics. The list goes on. This number of people who influenced him cast a whole new light on the public perception of what I thought he was all about. And when you see that Red Auerbach is the person who taught him to not take anything from anybody, then you start to look at it differently. It's not, oh, this is just a big, angry black guy. No, he's learning from some of the most revered people in sports. He's learning from some of the most unknown heroes of the black community, black woman teachers. So that was really one of the most profound learning experiences that I had is how he absorbed all of these lessons from so many people over the course of his lifetime. We're talking to Jesse Washington from The Undefeated, who's written the book literally on John Thompson, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So, Jason, so Jesse, you, you talk a lot about the influence and what he was going through in context with that time. I think it's interesting to try and put ourselves back in that bubble when he's recruiting. So as he's recruiting these kids and building in an era where there wasn't the same acceptance for a black head coach, how did he sort of translate that message of social issue and how it mattered to the kids that he wanted to come play for? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I feel that he did it just through his strength of character. He did it through recruiting very specifically, and I interviewed a lot of people who he recruited, and he never promised them that they would play a minute. He never promised them that they would start. He didn't even promise that they would get off the bench. And I'm talking Patrick Ewing, he didn't promise that to. Allen Iverson, Alonzo Mourning, he said very specifically, the only thing I will promise you is if you come to Georgetown and you do what you're supposed to do, you'll walk out of here with a diploma. And that was sort of the counterintuitive pitch that he had. Also, some people said, oh, he's got an advantage recruiting these kids because he's black. Well, at that time, in the early 80s, when he was trying to build a program and in the 70s, no black coach had ever done anything of real significance in mainstream college basketball. So the implication and the, the idea amongst a lot of kids was, well, we got to go to one of the big, quote-unquote, white schools coached by a white coach. It's sort of the way that a lot of black schools, uh, black players today, look at HBCUs. They're perceived as a lesser program with less exposure, and so they're more prone to try to go to a big-time thing. That's what John Thompson was dealing with as he built his program. So the way he did it really was just through being who he was, which was a teacher and an educator, and telling them, look, I'm going to educate your child. I'm going to educate you. I'm going to teach you how to make something of yourself in the world. And also, we're probably going to win a lot of games along the way. But that's not what my focus is about. And that really appealed to a whole generation of kids who made Georgetown what it was. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Jesse Washington of The Undefeated, who worked alongside John Thompson for years to write his autobiography. It's coming out in uh, January of next year, Jesse. Correct. I think it'll be out in December, and the title is I Came as a Shadow. Hmm. Can you explain the title? I can. Thank you for asking. Another surprise from John Thompson. This was a man who had a uncle who was a poet in the Harlem Renaissance. And early on when I met John Thompson out of the blue one day, he said, yeah, I had this uncle and who wrote poetry, and he recited a poem. Now, for those of you who can't really picture big, bad John Thompson reciting poetry, well, neither could I. And I quickly came to understand that this poem held so much resonance and meaning, and also the stature and achievements of his uncle, the poet, were so meaningful to Coach Thompson because he never saw examples growing up in the 1940s and 50s in segregated Washington, D.C. 
never saw examples of intellectual achievement by black people. He grew up in the Frederick Douglass housing projects, but did not know who Frederick Douglass was. He knew who Elgin Baylor was, Jackie Robinson, Satchel Paige, those kind of guys. So the title comes from Coach Thompson's love of his uncle, who was a poet. And I'm not going to tell you the substance of the poem because it's very powerful, and I hope that you guys experience it. Oh, that's a tease. The tease right there. You got to buy the book. You got to buy the book. Hey, Jesse, before we let you go, one last question, and you can certainly tell me if it's unfair, but when I have people on my podcast, the last question I ask them in the Spanish Inquisition is, um, if what are the three words you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, what do you think John Thompson Jr. would most hope that uh, people use to describe him? Three words. Mm. This was a man who resisted categorization and definition at every turn. <laughs> because well, he would have loved he was, the question. He would have loved it. So he would have loved the question, <laughs> right. Um, but I think that at his most introspective times, he would say, all I want to be was a teacher. Hmm. I like that. It's a great story up on The Undefeated. It's a quick one, but it's a great look at John Thompson. Check it out uh, by Jesse Washington. And, of course, check out the book when it comes out in December. Thanks for the time, Jesse. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance Drivers who save with Progressive. Save over $750 on average. Call or click today. Find out if we could save you hundreds on your car insurance. Coming up next on Spain and Fitz. You guys tell us if you're ready for some football, plus a decade that stood for almost, I'm sorry, a record that stood for almost two decades. Uh, Broken tonight, we'll tell you what it was. With the NFL season just 10 days away, there's so much to get into. How will COVID affect the season without a bubble? Will the civil unrest touch games? Will there be boycotts or walkouts? How will the play be we haven't seen any of it no postseason not a lot of looking into practices it feels like it's rushing up on us it's spain and fitz sarah spain jason fitz espn radio espn app sirius xm channel 80 we asked you guys if you felt the same about it in a poll on twitter and i don't know i I worded it funny on, on purpose fitz i don't know if everybody read past the beginning i think the answer to are you ready for some football is a pretty clear one for most people and it's yes, but they needed to keep reading because then I said, no, but like really ready though or just 10 days away feel super soon and you know nothing about the teams will be good and who's going to start and who to draft in fantasy and holy hell, how is football here? Uh, which resulted <laughs> in an answer of 58% yes, ready for some football and 42% no, don't yet know who's going to be good, who's playing and how it's all going to go down. So I think a fair assessment of probably where people are at. Uh, some might be at Mina Kimes level, highlighters uh, all over their, their uh binders full of notes and some might be like us where we're like oh shoot we have to plan a fantasy league because the season's almost here well do you feel like sarah there's some element of people that are maybe dipping their toe in the excitement level because there's a fear that the season isn't going to be played through i mean i don't want to be oh, debbie downer you know I, and and i feel like i'm hopeful you know i i can't believe that we're a couple of weeks away from you know me getting to watch my beloved raiders i didn't think that was going to happen honestly at several times but i wonder right now if people are just sort of waiting to get in until they see if if they can get in with all their heart. I 100% think that's the case. There have been so many things that we've gotten excited for and have been pulled out from under us in 2020. And there's also just a real fear of how the MLB season started, right? And lessons that had to be learned via the Marlins and then the Cardinals and then a couple other teams, which is a little bit easier to do in a cobbled together, weird already MLB season where they either make them up at the end or they play double headers. Football's a bit different. 
there's so few games. They need that extra rest and time between those games. And uh, we just have a lot of question marks about how it's going to work. And I think that that's allowed people, like you said, to maybe be a little bit more tentative about just how enthusiastic they get for it. Also, most teams aren't allowing anyone to attend. Uh, so the tailgating aspect and some of the traditions and sort of just the, the patterns and habits we're used to around the football season haven't been there, whether that's watching preseason or getting your tickets and your tailgates set. Uh, it just feels different. Yeah, and it's always so awkward when we first start watching any of these sports in empty arenas. I mean, I remember right. at the beginning of the bubble, everybody was freaking out about, oh, basketball seems so strange. And now I have it on all the time and I don't even notice it. I, we're going to have to go through that same adjustment week one of the NFL when we're looking at these massive football stadiums and suddenly realizing that there's only a few people in the stadiums, if at all. And, you know, what does that look like and what's the vibe and energy like? So I, I find it it's going to be a, a strange adjustment for fans in the beginning. That being said, I think that there's some curious energy or excitement that comes from knowing that when we go in to watch the first Patriots game of the year, it, it may be the first time that we've ever seen Cam Newton do anything. I mean, presuming he wins that job, like that's just a crazy thought to think that right. Cam Newton's going to be the starting quarterback of the Patriots. And the first time it takes he takes a snap, if he wins that job, it'll be in a game that counts. That's just foreign to me. Well, and it's not just covid concerns it's not just no preseason it's the fact that we're watching nba playoffs wnba yeah. basketball mlb leading into playoffs we've got hockey playoffs happening right now we've got an election coming and we've got news which appears to get worse every day and all of that is combining to make it feel really weird we're not doing our regular lead the show with a kind of meaningless story about some player who twisted his ankle because there's nothing else going on right there's so much else going on <laughs> Um, you mentioned basketball, by the way. I wanted to point out Courtney Vandersloot of the Chicago Sky, 18 assists tonight, which is a new single-game WNBA record. Tisha Pinachero's record of 16 had been there for nearly 20 years. Um, and I think the, the record-breaking assist, which would have been number 17, was Vandersloot to her wife, Allie Quigley, who's on the sky with her, which how adorable is that? Wife to wife for the record. Uh, and she's putting together an MVP campaign this year. This is certainly going to help when you break a record like that. That's incredible when you think. I, I had no idea that it came. It went to her wife. I mean, you yeah, think about that so shared cool. moment. Like, that's something that they'll have together forever in such a cool and intimate and very, very real way to have that memory together. That It's just one of the ways that the WNBA continues to excel, by the way, within within the wobble. We, we, and they do have some storylines that you don't see in any other sports, really. Maybe, maybe women's soccer, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where um, there are men who are openly gay in any of the pro sports leagues. So uh, the husband-to-husband -husband assist breaking uh, a record, uh, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer on. But I love those stories that come out of the WNBA. It makes it really fun.